Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. And today, I am thrilled to say that we are joined by physician, attorney, and entrepreneur, Julie Cantor. She is the founder and CEO of Harlan, a brand that elevates women's work bags to modern career pieces. She also writes and speaks about controversial issues in law, medicine, and justice. I can say that is absolutely the case. I'm so thrilled that you are here. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you so much for inviting me on the pod. I am really thrilled to be here. And you actually just brought up a fascinating question about what type of society we want to build and how that relates to how we treat medicine, how we treat science. Can you basically tell the listeners what we were just talking about before we pushed record? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So one of the ways that you can think about, you know, everything that's going on now in society and politics and everything is you kind of step back and you say, wait a minute, what kind of a world do I want to live in? What kind of a society are we creating when we pass a particular law, when we make a policy? And and where do we want that society to go? What values do we want it to reflect? And I think that if you think about everything in that framework, um, how can we allow people to be their best selves, their most creative selves, to contribute to the community, to contribute economically, to contribute in ways that they're supporting each other. What kind of a value do you want and how do you reflect that in the law and in every kind of facet of a society? No, I love that because it's this overarching umbrella that really should be our guiding force. And I try and talk to my students about this in class, which is you know, sometimes they're kind of unhappy with how a case turns out or they're unhappy with a specific provision of a law, but you have to think, how does this affect everybody else going forward? And what does it say about what type of society we want to live in? And one of the things I think you and I saw just this week is that there was a member of the California Assembly. She'd given birth about, I think, five weeks ago, and she was called back not allowed to vote by proxy at the end of the legislative session because it was deemed that she and her newborn were not particularly high risk for COVID. But I think for both of us, it brought up these bigger issues that we're still having to see having children and maternity leave as a bit of, frankly, a systemic inconvenience. It's something Mm -hmm. where the speaker of the California Assembly said, I'm sorry I wasn't attuned to the unique needs of my member. And, you know, add irony onto irony, she was there in part because she thought that her colleagues needed a vote on paid family leave. Mm. And I was wondering if you have this insanely unique background. I mean, you're a unicorn, you're a lawyer, you're a physician, you're in the business world. Yes. So can you tell us, what did you think when you saw all of a sudden there's Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks and she's holding a five-week-old in the state capitol where people have just tested positive for COVID? Well, you know, if she had wanted to be there in terms of like, I'm going to bring my child to the workplace, I would be very supportive of that. I remember, for example, when the prime minister of New Zealand brought her baby to 
and yes, yes, know, I remember a, a that. chamber of the, the government. And I thought, you know, good for you because people have children and we really have to think about the whole of people's lives. But I agree with you. The apology that came after this event where maternity leave was referenced as a unique need, you know, to me, that the fact that that even got out the door of this um, assembly member's office, the speaker's office, strikes me as exactly the problem with patriarchy because you just, you don't even see it, but you're swimming in it. And and that is to say that maternity leave is not a unique need. It shouldn't be any more unique than everybody going to the bathroom and that we, we build bathrooms into our buildings and our homes and, you know, things like that. If we were going to sort of start over and build a society that was inclusive and made everybody feel really welcome and honestly able to do their best work in the marketplace, wouldn't we want to say, okay, well, we're going to create buildings and create rules that are, you know, I was going to say sensitive to, but it's not even sensitive. They're just cognizant of the different needs that different people who live in different bodies have. You know, it reminds me of the, you know, the ADA when that was passed and how there were individuals who were pulling themselves up the steps of the Capitol to sort of illustrate the injustice of not being able to have buildings that accommodated wheelchairs. Because you're not thinking about that because it's, you know, you think, oh, well, that's a special need, a unique need. Right. No, it's it's what it's just part of what certain people's bodies in this society require. And is there a way that we can be inclusive enough that we think of those things from the get-go. So that that framing of maternity leave being a unique need, which is separate and apart from the COVID issue, that just struck me as, oh, we really need to change this culture. We need to be kind. We need to lift everybody up. And you know, it's not a zero-sum game, really. It's not like, well, it's pie. And if there's some for her, then there's less for me. It's just, it's really the right thing to do and there's got to be an economic argument there that if everybody feels included and can do their best work, that everybody wins, um, not only on the emotional end of things, but on the just the hardcore money end of things. Well, that I mean, that's right. Like, so we have to make the argument that not just appeal to your better angels, that this is the right thing to do, but that ultimately it will benefit everybody, that it benefits everybody when you don't view a disability or having children or being on maternity leave as an inconvenience and particularly one that you know costs the system money and that it really is a reframing. And I, you know, we could do an entire episode on this idea, which I think pervades our system of we wrote the blueprints a long time ago when it was right. typically a person who's not going to go on maternity leave. It was typically a man who typically didn't have disabilities who wrote kind of the rules of the game. And we keep trying to just, you know, add a little bit of the house here or there or shave off a room here or there, mm-hmm. but we haven't thought about a full reworking. A full remodel. Yeah. That is such a great point. And it reminds me of this, uh, this case that I have taught in some of my law school classes when I was teaching over at UCLA. There's a case from 1873 where one of the very first women who passed the bar, she was actually the second woman in the country to pass a bar, and that was in Illinois, and her name was Myra Bradwell. And she applied to be a lawyer, and her law license application was denied. And so like any good 
would-be lawyer. She sued, and her case went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And for reasons we can just kind of skip over for the moment, she lost her case, but there was a really interesting concurrence by one of the justices, Justice Bradley. And it gives you a little bit of insight into the time and and to exactly what you're saying about the blueprints and, and who set up the society and who was thought about and how it was created. And just this short quote where he talked about the reason that she couldn't be a lawyer is because it upset the natural and proper role of, of women, that she needed to be performing the duties of motherhood and wife in accordance with what he said were, quote, the laws of the creator, unquote, um, and that these respective spheres of men and women needed to be, um, y- you know, they needed to be respected. So that's kind of just a little bit of insight into exactly what we're talking about, this this blueprint. And it may not be that adding a room, like you're saying in this really terrific house analogy, like adding a room or adding, you know, some decoration or putting up a picture that that really gets to the problem when the foundation uh, needs to be completely repoured. You know, it reminds me of when I talk to my students, they are used to walking into a classroom where there's going to be at least 50% women. And that is such a recent development. And so it seems like we have changed things on kind of the entry level of being at school. But then because of the blueprint, once we all go out into the world, there are still those systemic problems where this is why as you progress in a profession, you know, there are still so many fewer female, you know, fill in the blank, uh, law partners, Mm -hmm. um, CEOs, CFOs. Uh, you know, go into the political sphere because we still have that kind of systemic issue of now we can all kind of walk into the classroom, but what happens after graduation? Mm-hmm. And but it it is always striking to me that I mean, think about uh, my students all know who Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is. Mm-hmm. She had to fight so hard to try and get a job that any man with her credentials would have, you know, the firms oh, would have been begging right. for him. Yeah, of course. Exactly. And, and these are people who are, you know, this is an ancient history. I think that uh, you and I might be able to look at older colleagues who will talk about being the only woman in the room. So let's talk about something that seemingly does not cross partisan lines, which is um, we originally talked about focusing on the politicization of science and medicine. Yeah. And specifically, I'm thinking of something which I truly don't understand why this falls on partisan lines, but masks. And masks, of course, is a representation of a much bigger issue, which is happening in the middle of a pandemic where we have certain people who are predisposed to trust the experts, to trust the scientists, Mm -hmm. to believe the doctors and the epidemiologists. And then we have another swath of the country who thinks that this pandemic is basically hogwash. It's overblown. Mm. And I know this sounds so naive, but I cannot wrap my head around why this is falling on partisan lines, because I'm old enough to remember when the difference between being a Democrat and a Republican was largely, what's your view on tax policy? Are you, you know, tough on crime or are you more pro 
criminal justice reform? What are your views of environmental controls? Do they hurt business or are they necessary to help the environment? Mm-hmm. And you know, what what are your views on more international trade, less international trade? Right. You get where I'm going yeah. with this, which is it wasn't a proxy for are you going to believe the vast majority of the scientific community when they say we're in the middle of a serious pandemic and the way to protect others, and now we think also yourself, Mm -hmm. is to wear a mask. And again, you have a really unique perspective on this as a physician, as a doctor, as a keen observer of what's happening. And I'm hoping you can help unpack for me why, how on earth does this have anything to do with your political reference point in life? Yeah, it's so, it's so baffling um, in, in a very real sense, because you'd think, well, wait a minute, uh, Republicans, you know, just talking about like, what's your view on taxes, things like that. My sense was always it was, you know, preserve, preserve, preserve at, at all costs. And it just seems to me that I, I it's baffling, because if, if scientists say to you, look, we have data that suggest wearing a mask really makes a difference in terms of spreading this airborne disease. And you can even just think about it logically. You can think about it in terms of the physics, um, what kind of a mask might be most effective, those those kinds of issues. You can look at other countries and other communities where they've been doing masking, uh, that you know, that kind of natural experiment. What do we see there? You could argue, well, is it is it causation? Is it association? Even if you're in a position where you're like, well, I'm not sure, but maybe it's helpful. Why wouldn't you say, well, it's such a small ask, you know, it's not, they're not asking me to like draw, take my blood every Friday or I have, you know, it's really just putting on a mask when you're going out. So it's just such a small request. Um, and also just as a, a, a measure of being courteous to other people and being, you know, really saying this, we have some really good um, scientists who are saying this could be very useful in the pandemic. Is it a replacement for distancing? Is it a replacement for doing a, no, of course not. But it's just one, you know, kind of arrow in the quiver. So why not use it? And if it turns out that it was a, you know, really a game changer, then that's terrific. So I don't understand why that wouldn't be something that appeals to people of all stripes politically. Um, so, So that's kind of one question. And I just tend to think that when you have people at the top whose leadership styles are completely disruptive. Um, And their MO is, well, you can't tell me what to do, or if there's a norm, I'll throw it out or find, you know, find a rule that I won't break. And what are you going to do about it? That it may be almost as, as simple as that, that you have people saying, you know, I think that a scientist saying that I think this and, you know, people at the top who have, uh, like I said, a very disruptive leadership style saying, well, I don't care. You know, you say the sky is blue. I say it's purple. Um, But just this, like, I won't wear a mask inside at the food store or something. You know, why? And, and I, you know, the only, and I think it really does come from the, the top. I think it comes from that behavior, that leadership behavior and modeling. And I think that, you know, there's a conflict in some ways between Pence and Trump, because, you know, Pence went to the Mayo Clinic, and he didn't put on a mask. And that really just sort of looks pretty terrible to be at a hospital where, 
people are still having issues getting personal protective equipment and there is no question about transmission. And I understand that he wasn't in a patient care ward. I, I do get that. But just kind of the optics of it, like, wouldn't you want to wash your hands or wear the right uniform? You know, you're kind of a guest in somebody else's home. And that Mayo allowed him to do that is sort of another kind of issue in terms of obedience to authority. But just making this into an issue, like, I, I think they could have said, you know, it's the American thing to do. It's the human thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And it would have been a non-issue. I just think they created an issue. Um, and I really don't know why. I think maybe it's just to be divisive. Once you say, yes, you have to wear masks, then you really have to accept reality, which is we are in the middle of a pandemic. It's not magically going mm. away. It's much worse than the flu. It means that President Trump was not able to wave a magic wand and say, be gone, COVID-19. <laughs> right. He did not have that Harry Potter kind of magic formula. And he dug into that position early on. And so I think when you are not, you know, if you're not equivocal, you say, well, we, you know, science evolves, let's see how things go. And we're going to make recommendations as the science comes in. You know, you could kind of hedge your bet that way, but they, but you know, that team definitely dug in, like it's going away by April it's going to, you know, magically disappear. And so to have to save face, maybe there's an element of that too. Like, oh, it's still, it's, it's still not a big deal. What's a really big deal is this, not the 180,000 plus people who've died related to COVID-19. It's just a a frustrating experience and it's too bad because, um, it may have been a really like a solidarity point and everybody I think wants to go back to work and back to the movies and back to school. And if this would play even some small role in getting us back there, Oh, why wouldn't you want to do that? I mean, you know, it's, this is, it's, it's exhausting, I think for at least a lot of people. It's interesting that because we don't put enough emphasis on the idea that this virus is a novel virus. And I see this in a lot of different areas where when people change their mind in the face of new evidence, it's seen as a mistake Mm -hmm. as opposed to progress. I mean, isn't that exactly what's supposed to happen in the scientific community? Can you imagine if we learned nothing new about a new virus from March until September, it would be a total failure. So of course, the recommendations have to change, the messaging has to change. And I think, unfortunately, as Americans, we've been almost conditioned to believe when things change, it means somebody lied to you in the beginning and somebody was wrong, as opposed to this actually shows that there was progress. It's exactly right. I wish that people had that understanding of the science, that science evolves, that it is about testing hypotheses. And even in the context of COVID-19, I mean, here's here's a pretty good one. Back when it was first, I want to say, you know, let's take back to, to March. There was an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association that was talking about ways that we could possibly combat or treat this disease. And steroids were listed as, you know, no data to support kind of thing. Like, we don't think that's going to be efficacious. Well, there have been several studies, and now I think there's really definitive evidence that steroids, because of their work on the inflammatory processes in the body, 
um, that would be what, what, what scientists and doctors would call the mechanism of action, that it, it, it needs to be first line therapy for certain people when they're presenting with a certain level of um, COVID-19 disease in the disease process. And that's exactly your point. That it doesn't mean JAMA was wrong or the Journal of the American Medical Association was wrong or those authors are wrong. It was March. And so people said, well, okay, hold on a minute. Maybe this would work. Let's investigate it. And now we have data, we have evidence, we have science to help inform our thinking and inform our policy. So to just dismiss that as, well, that that's that's not what we thought last year. I mean, that's as silly as children growing out of their clothes and you saying, well, there's something wrong with my child. You know, he doesn't fit into his one-year-old shoes or whatever. Well, of course, that's not the way children are. They grow. That's how it is. We got through about 8% of the questions that I had for you. And so, (laughs) but with that, we did learn a lot today. And as loyal listeners of Passing Judgment know, I now ask my guests if we could learn a little bit more about not the topics that you know, but also about you. So here we go with my favorite three questions. Number one, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? I guess I'd want to meet Oprah right now because um, I would want to tell her about a particular um, case that I used to work on and that I'm in contact with the individual who is um, on death row for a crime he didn't commit. And I would want to talk with her about that and how we can eradicate that problem of junk science being introduced into court, uh, eyewitness testimony being tainted and problematic from the get-go, all the science behind that. And I would want her to help me tell his story. So I think that's, I would want to talk with her. She she seems to have a pretty good platform. So I think she could help him. So that's that's who I'd want to meet. Number two, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal with you. What is it? Oh, it has to be sushi, I think. Now you get a superpower for an hour. What is it and why? Oh, it's to see the future because um I mean, for obvious reasons, that would be really useful. Um, you know, like it would be useful. You could think of a whole bunch of reasons why that would be useful. So that I would definitely want to know, uh, you know, certain questions. Um, I have certain questions answered, like when was this going to happen? What, you know, things like that. I think that could really change how I make decisions or live my life. So an hour of future vision would be very cool. Do I get a cape? We've got a lot. Or can I, like, I, I feel like there needs to be an outfit with that, but we can talk about that another time. <laughs> if you're willing to wear a cape that says passing judgment, then yes, you get a cape. I love that. So <laughs> with that, Dr. Julie Cantor, thank you for joining us. You can find Dr. Cantor on Twitter at Julie D. Cantor. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Julie Cantor, we scratched the surface of so many important issues. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you for having me. It was amazing. Hopefully, we'll be able to do it again soon. Thanks for spending another episode with us. 